This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs.
Thank you, good old gospel singers. Open your Bibles, please, to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And uh, we'll be working, launching from chapter 16. I think that perhaps the greatest measure of our character is how we respond when it dawns on us that we're the most influential or looked up to person in the room. And and if you say, well, that knocks me out, I'm never the most influential person in the room. Well, you are. Everyone here at some level has authority, influence. You're a father, you're a mother, you're a husband, a wife, grandma, grandpa, manager, owner, captain of a team, supervisor, babysitter, you're the big brother, you're the big sister. Everyone here in some capacity has authority. And our response in, in that moment, I believe, is the greatest reflection of our character. And that leads us into week four of our series entitled David. And let me just kind of say, you'll need your brains today. I, I hope that you brought them uh, because we're going to cover about 20 chapters in the Bible that takes in about 23 years of David's life. Now, initially, our lesson will appear to be disjointed, and you probably say, well, it always is, but it's going to be more so today, because we're going to backtrack to 1 Samuel chapter 16, which would be about 10 years backwards from last week. You normally go forwards. We're going backwards, but then we're going to fast forward over 20 years to 2 Samuel chapter 5. This is going to be a little bit of a helter-skelter approach, but it's on purpose. There is a plan to my madness. It may not be a good plan, but I do have a plan. I just want you to know that. And and seriously, if you'll try to track with me, I think that by the time we say the final amen, it's going to make pretty good sense to all of us. When David was in middle school, or at least middle school age, one day the prophet Samuel showed up at David's father's house. Now, David wasn't home that day. He was working. Actually, he was tending his father's sheep. But Samuel showed up to Jesse, David's father, and and, and he said, I'm here on a special mission. Now, it was a secret mission. And and, and at this point, uh, there's no indication that, that Samuel told them the purpose of the mission. But basically, the purpose of this secret mission was to anoint the next king of Israel. Now, why did this mission have to be a secret? Well, because Israel already had a king, King Saul. And so if you're going to anoint the next king, and the current king is still alive and not not looking for a successor, obviously you'd better keep your mission a secret. So Samuel shows up and, and he kind of camouflages the mission and he says, Jesse, I, I've come here to do a special sacrifice. And, and so I need you to invite all of your family to it, which would then give Samuel the, Samuel the prophet a chance to see which of Jesse's sons would get the God nod. Or in other words, would, uh, would be chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. So Jesse gathers his family. Samuel begins to scan the family trying to figure out which one of Jesse's sons would make a good king. Let's pick up our reading, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we'll begin with verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, 
surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now, let me, let me just clarify this, that Eliab was Jesse's oldest son. And in this culture, you would kind of, by default, go with the firstborn. And, and so Samuel was probably thinking, well, you know, this is too easy. Here's the firstborn son. So mission accomplished, game over. Let's do the sacrifice thing so I can get out of here and go play golf or, or whatever Samuel liked to do. But in verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Which, by the way, is very difficult not to do. I mean, when you meet someone for the first time, what do you notice? Their appearance, their hair, their face, their build. That's what Samuel did. But but the Lord said, do not consider his appearance or, or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, let me just stop, and I probably shouldn't have to do this, but I'm going to. Let me give a practical word of warning. Ladies, don't be fooled by those of us that might be super good looking. You need to look into our heart. And men, by the same token, it's a woman's heart that makes the woman attractive long term. But men, on second thought, there's no use telling you that. You're still going to look at the outside appearance anyway. But anyway, God says, Eliab is not the one. Well, the story goes on, and, and we won't read all of this just to save time, but, but six sons later, and you can count them in the words, six sons later, God still hasn't given his approval for the next king. Well, by now, Samuel is perplexed, and so maybe he looks at them, scans them one more time, thinking that maybe he had missed hearing God's voice, but again, there is no approval from God for any of the sons. So finally, he says to Jesse, and imagine this awkward moment. Maybe he says, Jesse, you got a bunch of kids. And with as many kids as, as you have, did you maybe accidentally forget to invite one? Let's read it in First Samuel chapter 16, verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, Jesse answered, they're, they're still the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So David, the youngest and the most unlikely son, is sent for. And he, he comes in from the fields. And when, when he arrives, and again, he's probably 13 to 14 years old. All of a sudden, Samuel gets the God nod. He gets the nod from God. And in verse 12, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel walks over to young David pours oil on his head, gives him a blessing. And, and remember, this is still a secret mission to the family. And so all of the older brothers are probably standing there and they're like, uh, what just happened with our little brother? Well, about 18 months or so later is the time when David goes to the battlefield. He has his encounter with Goliath that we talked about in our first lesson. He becomes an overnight sensation. And then we learned a couple of weeks ago that for the next seven years, David is in and around the palace of King Saul. Well, then Saul, because of his jealousy, gets serious about trying to kill David. David has to flee. He becomes a fugitive from the king. And for the next eight years, David is on the run, hiding with his band of disgruntled men, all the while knowing God had chosen him to be king. 
Well, while David is on the run from King Saul, the interesting thing is that on two occasions, David has an opportunity to kill King Saul. And, and to me, this is so fascinating. One is an occasion where David is hiding deep in a cave because King Saul's men are close by. And would you believe that King Saul, as he's passing by that cave, he decides to go into that very cave. Now you say, well, why did he go in? Well, probably to go to the bathroom. And, and I know some of you are horrified that I would say that in church. And there's, there's a little bit of debate on this matter. Most translations say Saul went in to relieve himself. Another translation says he went into the cave to tend to his needs. Another says he went in there, King James says he went in there to cover his feet, whatever that means. And those that translate it that way believe that Saul went in there to take a little break, you know, maybe take a nap. And I, I, I don't know. I'll let you be the scholar here to decide exactly what, what Saul was doing. But anyway, David is deep in the cave. Saul goes in there to do whatever he went in there to do. And while he's doing whatever he went in there to do, well, let me just read it for you. In First Samuel chapter 24, verse 3, he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So kind of catch what's going on. Saul's eyes have adjusted to the dark. Saul, I'm sorry, David's eyes have adjusted to the dark. Saul's haven't. And, and, and so David's men see Saul come in and they can't believe it. And they turn to David and, and they whisper, are you kidding me? Can you believe our luck? Here is Saul alone. And they basically say, this is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us kill Saul and rejoice in it. And that's Trussell's translation there. Well, David almost falls for it. And he starts quietly slipping up on King Saul as he's doing whatever he went in there to do. But all of a sudden, David realizes, no, 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 I can't do that. This is the Lord's anointed. And so David takes his sword, but instead of driving it through Saul, he quietly cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Well, afterward, in verse 5, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men. And in other words, he said, shame on you for trying to get me to kill him. And he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Well, after Saul got a little distance away, David appears in the mouth of the cave and, and he says, Saul, yoo-hoo, or whatever he said, got Saul's attention and in verse 9, he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. So that was the first opportunity David had to kill Saul. 
the second one is, is equally fascinating. Took place just a few months later in, in 1 Samuel chapter 26. And, and David, as usual, had sent out spies to keep track of where Saul was. Well, on this day, the report comes back that they're in the desert of Ziph, which was a wide open area, had some rolling hills, no trees. And Saul's army had made camp for the night. Well, David cannot resist. And, and he takes a group of men up over a hill to watch the camp where King Saul was. And, and, and King Saul was where kings always were, right smack in the middle of the army. Here's the army, here's the king in the middle, because that's the safest place. Well, as the sun goes down and darkness settles in, David turns to his friend Abishai and says, Abishai, I have a really, really bad idea. And would you be willing to join me in a really, really bad idea? And Abishai was in, and, and here's what happened. David and Abishai sneaked down into Saul's army at night. They tiptoe past the first line of sleeping guards. They make their way past the slumbering army. They reach the king's chief bodyguard who was named Abner. His responsibility is to protect the king. They slip past him right up to King Saul, who is lying on the ground, sleeping with his spear stuck in the ground right by him. And the Bible says that Abishai said to David, and I think he probably actually whispered, but he, he said, David, we missed our opportunity a few months ago. You basically wouldn't pull the trigger. Now we get another chance to take Saul out. And, and it's like God has prepared this moment for us. This has to be God's will. It's meant to be. And, and could I just stop here and go on a little rant and try to debunk some horrible theology? I have come to almost detest that little phrase, well, I guess it was meant to be. I don't know how many times I've heard it. People say, well, it just happened, so it was meant to be. And, you know, it just worked out, so it was meant to be. It must be God's will. That, my friends, is junk theology. Yes. Obviously, God at times does orchestrate events where things just appear to happen. But just because something happens doesn't necessarily meant that it mean that it's God's will. Just because... Your loan goes through doesn't mean, doesn't always mean that it was meant to be and that it's God's will for you to buy that house. Just because you come across a good deal on something doesn't mean that it was always meant to be and that it's God's will that you buy it. You know, when we build our theology around that phrase, well, it happened so it was meant to be, that is junk theology and actually, theologians call that fatalism. Don't fall for that trap. But, but Abishai basically said that. David, look, it's meant to be. God has given Saul into your hands. And, and David says, no, 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 no. I can't touch the Lord's anointed. And, and Abishai says, well, well David, yeah, I, I know you've got all these religious convictions. And you don't feel you should lay hand on, on the Lord's anointed. That's okay. But, but I don't have those same convictions. God hasn't told me that. So I'll take care of him. Just give me the okay and I'll pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike him twice because my aim will be true the first time. But 
1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 9. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And, and the reason that David refused to lay a hand on God's anointed was because he had learned the hard way that when you take matters into your own hands, it brings nothing but heartache. And so David began to develop a philosophy around this phrase, God's will, God's way, in God's time. God's will, God's way, in God's time. But then this, this kind of cracks me up a little bit. It's as if David wanted to have a little bit of fun. And so he said to Abishai in verse 11, now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and, and let's go. So, so they grab Saul's spear and the water jug and then quietly slip out of camp, go up on a hillside, wait for the sun to rise. And there on the hillside, they are silhouetted up there. And as the sun comes up, David begins to yell from the hillside, Abner! Abner! And again, Abner is the, the chief of, the, of King Saul's bodyguard. In verse 14, let's just read it. He called out to the army, army to Abner, son of Ner, aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? David said, you're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your Lord, the king? Someone came to destroy your Lord, the king. What you've done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? So in other words, Abner, you call yourself a man? But you're a poor excuse for a bodyguard. And, and, and David says, and by the way, Abner, um, is King Saul missing anything? And Abner looks around and sure enough, King Saul's spear is missing. His water jug is missing. Looks back up at David and he's got the spear and the water jug just waving. And David and Abishai and his men melt into the desert. Well, a period of time goes by. And eventually, and of course, I'm just covering a few high points. Eventually, King Saul and his son, Jonathan, are killed by the Philistines in battle. And the interesting thing is that the Bible says that instead of throwing a party, David mourns the death of Saul and Jonathan. Well, at this time, one of the tribes of Israel, and Israel had how many tribes? Twelve. But the tribe of Judah, which was David's tribe, declares David to be the king of that tribe. But before the other 11 tribes could follow suit, one of King Saul's other sons named, and it's kind of a different name, Ishbosheth. Try to say that five times in a row. He declares himself to be the king over the other 11 tribes. So for the next seven years, David is king over one tribe, the tribe of Judah, Ishbosheth is king over the other 11, but the people keep saying, David, claim what's yours, claim what's yours. The entire kingdom is yours. But over and over, David's attitude is, no, God's will, God's way, in God's time. Well, one day, two men, their brothers, they sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he's sleeping. He's taking a nap. 
and they murder him. And they think they've done a great favor for David because now they believe that they've removed the last obstacle for David to be king over the entire nation of Israel. They kill him. They cut off Ishbosheth's head. They take it to David to give him the good news. And here's what the Bible says in 2 Samuel. We'll move to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 8. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. And, and by the way, have you ever wondered why in the Bible they would bring severed heads to show people? Have you ever thought about that? It's kind of, kind of gruesome, isn't it? Well, here is one of the reasons they did that. Because they didn't have iPhones back then. Seriously, nobody had a camera to document the death. And so rather than lug the entire body around to prove that so-and-so was dead, they would cut off the head and take it to them. And this is kind of sick, but I'm kind of sick. I read a rhyme about this so you can remember it. This isn't mine, but I read it. The only way to prove that someone was dead was to show up somewhere with their head. So I know that's sick and you can remember that there, but... Anyway, they present the head to David and they're so excited. But David answered in 2 Samuel chapter 4, jumping into verse 11, when, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and, be, and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed him. Because in David's mind, again, it was God's will God's way in God's time. So I want you to listen to the timeline here because this is really, really important. Seven years or so after David killed Goliath, plus eight more years after running as a fugitive, plus seven more years of being king of one tribe, and still being at war with the house of Saul, the Bible says, so you got seven plus eight plus seven more. Second Samuel chapter five, verse one, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. So finally, seven years plus eight years plus seven more, David becomes king. That's my introduction. I'm ready to start into the heart of the message right now, but actually I want to circle back to my opening statement. Remember? How a person responds when it dawns on them that they're in charge is the best reflection of their character. Well, when all of the elders of all the 12 tribes of Israel crowned David king in this moment, we find out David's true greatness. Now, now think about this first. They're making him king. He will have all the power. His word will be the law. He will have all the influence. He will be the most powerful person, not only in the room, but 
in the nation. And the Bible gives us this little, tiny, obscure statement that most of us have never noticed. But it gives us a glimpse into David's true character. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, here's the statement. Listen, the king made a compact with them. What, what's the compact? Well, that's actually the word for covenant. In fact, most translations use the word covenant. The king made a covenant with them, with those elders at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now, what's a covenant? Well, in our way of thinking, it's okay. It's this, I'll do this if you'll do that. You know, if you'll do that, I'll do this. And and here David made a covenant and made promises to the people. Now, understand again, David did not need to do this. He was going to be the boss, the king, the most powerful person around. Not to mention, he's facing a group of elders who did not support him when he was on the run. And, and so you and I would have probably said to those leaders, okay, guys, I put up with your nonsense for 15 years, eight years while I was a fugitive, seven more years after I became king of the lone tribe of Judah, you were not very nice. So I'm going to give you a little of your own medicine. Get ready. But instead, David, and this is so powerful, he made a covenant with these people before the Lord, and in so doing, he recognized that he would be a king under authority. In this moment, he was submitting himself not only to the people, but to God. And he was saying, okay, you're making me a king, but I'm not the king. I'm a king, but God will be the king. And here's the point. This is so incredibly amazing. David waited over 20 years to become king after he had been anointed king. But during those years, he learned that kings are accountable. He learned that kings don't use their influence for themselves. He learned that they use their influence to serve and make a difference in the lives of others. And can I give you something that I think is so cool? I mean, this almost brings chills to me. A thousand years later, 20 miles north of of this spot in Hebron where, where David made this covenant with the elders. 20 miles from there, there would be another covenant. And this is so amazing. Jesus would introduce another covenant. And John, who gives us some of the greatest literature about Jesus, he, he wrote how, how Jesus in the hours right before he would be arrested modeled what David had modeled about a thousand years earlier. And I love the similarities here. Like David, Jesus had been anointed to be king, but was not recognized. And like David, Jesus would initiate a new covenant, not with the 12 tribes of Israel, but rather between God and all of mankind. And like David, Jesus has the power without the crown. He has the authority without the title. And remember our question, what do you do when... You're the most powerful, influential person in the room. Well, the Apostle John says that Jesus got up from the last Passover meal that he partook of. 
he wrapped a towel around his waist and he headed for the basin of water and the disciples couldn't believe it in fact Peter says no 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 you're not doing that we've got servants to do that you're not about to wash our feet you're a rabbi you're a teacher no way but the apostle John says that Jesus ignored all of them and tells us that Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel around his waist. And here's what I believe Jesus was saying. I believe he was saying that in those moments, when you think you're something, in that moment when someone gives you the corner office, in that moment when you become the boss, when they set on your head the crown, I believe Jesus was saying in that moment you need to look for some feet to wash. And of course that doesn't necessarily play out literally through washing each other's feet but it does play out through serving each other. Because again I believe the greatest reflection of our character is what you do when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful person in the room. You're the most powerful person in the relationship. And you have authority and you have influence as a father, a mother, husband, wife, owner, captain, big brother, big sister. At that moment, you, me, we, we would do well to embrace the greatness that David and Jesus modeled for us and that would be to look for some feet to wash and again not literally but that we would begin to leverage our power our authority and influence not for ourselves not to show how big we've become how important but that we would leverage our power for the benefit of others. Because after all, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. And who are we to think that we're any better than Jesus? So how does that play out for us today? How does that play out for us this week? I don't know. But this week, as you have those moments when you realize, you know what? Yeah, they're looking up to me. I'm the most powerful person in the relationship or in the room or at work. I'm the boss. When it dawns on you, maybe instead of leveraging your power to show how big and important you are, maybe at that point you need to serve them. You know what I think David would tell us? You know what I think Jesus would tell us? Um, This week, why don't you look for some feet to wash? Why don't you look for ways that you can make a difference? And not just in the lives of your close friends, but in the lives of those that maybe nobody is praying for, nobody is loving. Let's pray together.
Lord, I know what our society says today. Show uh, who's boss. Give them a piece of your mind. Stand up for your rights. That's what our society says. But, but Jesus, who had been anointed as king, he took the towel, the basin of water. He did what only servants typically did. And he washed some dirty feet. Lord, I don't know how that will play out for us this week. But I believe all around us there are those people that they look to us with a measure of respect. And so, Lord, maybe this week would be the week that we would serve them. Lord, help us to be creative. And I know... I, I know what my tendency is to do. Well, pick someone in the church and let's go bless them. But Father, there may be someone that lives in a different part of town from where we are. And probably nobody is going to serve them. And so maybe, maybe you would help us to be creative this week so that we can serve others. Lord, don't let us be... Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, to where we're, we're, we're too good to get dirty. You know, we might catch a disease. Um, Lord, we're, we're such a sanitized culture today. And so we're afraid to sometimes get dirty as we serve. But Father, as, as David modeled about 3,000 years ago and as Jesus modeled 2,000 years ago I pray that here in 2018 we would also model what it means to serve others God I pray that this week this week we would leverage our influence to make a difference in someone else's life Thank you, Father. We love you. We just really sent your presence. We believe you're doing a work in our hearts, in my heart, all of our hearts. Lord, take us from here with your Holy Spirit continually nudging us to do what's right. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.